Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host, as always, the Snowman. I have three fascinating stories to share with you today, folks. Historical events that made the front page of every newspaper when they occurred. Tales of heroism, courage, fear, and sadly tragedy. A tale of three separate shipwrecks that happened at different periods of time and all sunk under different circumstances. These stories, which were once front page news to then become immortal through the power of song, are now all but forgotten to everyone save historians who study such events and the families of those who were lost or affected by the disasters. The stories are that of the USS Reuben James, the USS Thresher, and the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. Their stories have fascinated me for years, and I want to share that fascination with all of you. So grab a life jacket and a hot cup of joe, and let's submerge into history and learn the stories of these once powerful vessels. We begin with the USS Reuben James. Have you heard of a ship called the Good Reuben James? Manned by hard-fighting men, both of honor and fame. She flew the stars and stripes of this land of the Laid down in the spring of 1919 in the shipyard of Camden, New Jersey, the USS Reuben James was constructed through the summer and then officially launched on October 2, 1919, and commissioned into the U.S. Navy the following September. Christened and given the namesake Reuben James after a hero of the Barbary Wars, it is believed that the boatswain's mate leapt behind his commanding officer, Lieutenant Stephen Decatur. <clears throat> For anyone living on the eastern shore of Maryland, you might recognize that name especially around the Berlin area. <clears throat> Left behind Decatur to protect him from a Barbary pirate who was swinging his sword at Decatur's head. Instead, he hit Reuben James and badly wounded him. He would survive and return to serve in the Navy, although, according to some modern historians, they believe this story to now be inaccurate. But for the better part of 200 years, it was accepted by all accounts. And thus, in his honor, the U.S. Navy gave their newest destroyer his name. And this ship would become more famous than her namesake. The Reuben James was a four-funnel Clemson-class destroyer, which, in essence, that class was built to be an anti-submarine destroyer. They would remove the boilers that helped propel the ship and replace them with depth charges that would help in sinking enemy subs. Yet, this was uncertain of when it would be needed, as we were still at peace when she was constructed. But as the old saying goes, war is ever always on the horizon. In order to understand her timeline, we have to do a little history lesson, and learn how and why it came to be that the Reuben James was sunk. Trouble was brewing across the Atlantic. The Nazi regime under Adolf Hitler was growing and becoming more threatening by the day. On March 31st, 1939, the countries of Great Britain, France, and Poland signed an alliance pact guaranteeing that if Poland were to be invaded by Germany, the other two countries would declare war. When the Blitzkrieg of Poland commenced on September 1st, the two countries honored their word. But unfortunately, they were not prepared for the onslaught of Nazi Germany and her skilled military tacticians. 
while Britain held its own, France quickly fell. Under the leadership of Winston Churchill, Great Britain stood alone, or so it seemed. In August of 1941, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill met on board the HMS Prince of Wales. Remember that ship from the Bismarck episode? In their meeting, they agreed to the Atlantic Charter, where in shorthand, the United States would aid Britain in whatever ways they could without jeopardizing its neutrality. In September, supply convoys began sailing from the eastern seaboard of the U.S. to Great Britain and thus ended up alleviating the threat of Nazi Germany's reach. While the U.S. was still officially neutral, her citizens all wanted to pitch in in whatever way they could. They knew that Hitler was an evil madman, bent on taking over the world. And in order to do that, he'd also have to defeat the U.S. Something we were not too fond of. So when the convoys began sailing, thousands of young men joined the Merchant Marines, the Navy, or the Coast Guard. Quick note, several hundred other Americans went overseas in order to fight. Some went east to serve in the RAF, and some went west where they formed the Flying Tigers to aid the Chinese against the Rising Sun Bombers of Japan. With the convoys loaded down with supplies sailing across the Atlantic, they needed protection against German U-boat attacks. The subs of the Kriegsmarine were a deadly force to be trifled with. For instance, in 1940 alone, they were responsible for sinking over 2.5 million tons of supplies. It took brave men to volunteer for these missions, but they sailed anyway. Since the convoy ships were so laden down with supplies, they could not carry armaments to defend themselves against the U-boat attacks. That is where ships like the Reuben James enter the picture. Destroyers were the leading force against U-boats. Dropping their depth charges, the massive explosions under the water shook and rattled the submarines. If enough were dropped, water would pour into the sub causing it to sink or force it to the surface where it was either captured or fired upon by the destroyer. This was on both sides of the war, proving that, while often portrayed as glamorous, there is nothing glamorous about drowning in your own ship while already being underwater. On October 23, 1941, the Reuben James set sail with the USS Niblack, the USS Hillary P. Jones, the USS Benson, and the USS Tarbell escorting a convoy of 44 ships out of Argentina, Newfoundland. The voyage was to last about 10 to 13 days. Their destination was northern Scotland, via the southern coast of Iceland. Through my research, I found out that when ships reached a certain point, they would disperse and sail in different directions, as they were basically out of harm's way by that point. The ship's crews were jittery on this trip. Multiple times during the voyage, the Hillary P. Jones thought she detected subs on her radar and raced to attack them and dropped several depth charges, but to no avail. One of these radar alerts turned out to be a school of porpoises. Much to the crew's chagrin. Whoops! Why I feel sheepish. On October 30th, the convoy was off the coast of Iceland and the Reuben James thought she detected a possible U-boat and dropped two depth charges, but to no effect. While the attack on the supposed U-boat was futile, the U-boat was indeed there. Beneath the cold, dark waters of the North Atlantic, the U-552 monitored the convoy, waiting for the opportune moment to strike. Under the command of Captain Eric Taup, the U-552 was one of the most successful subs in the Kriegsmarine. He kept the sub at a distance, 
watching for an opportune moment to launch an attack. The moment came the next morning. At 0530 on October 31, 1941, Tope looked through his periscope and made his final coordinates and ordered two torpedoes be made ready to launch. At 0534, he gave the order to fire. Torpedoes, loose! The torpedoes were launched and moments later hit the Reuben James in the bow of the ship on the port side. The torpedo was more deadly than even the Germans anticipated, for when it struck the bow, it actually hit the forward magazine, causing the ship to explode, ripping it in two. It was described by an anonymous eyewitness in the following. One or more explosions occurred in the vicinity of the forward fire room, accompanied by a lurid orange flame and a high column of black smoke visible for several minutes at some miles. And remember, folks, this is in just after 5.30 in the morning, so it's kind of dark still outside. But they could see the results of that for quite some time. I mean, when the ship goes down, you still have all the debris and the remnants of the ship still on fire and all the oil, so the smoke is billowing for quite some time. The entire front of the ship was already gone, and the ocean was flooding what was left of it. Survivors emerged onto her decks, and seeing that the ship was already sinking, decided to abandon ship, regardless of any orders. Inflating some life rafts, they jumped into the still black waters of the freezing North Atlantic. Around this time of year, the waters off the coast of Iceland are about 47 degrees Fahrenheit. When the aft part of the ship slipped below the waves just five minutes later, two depth charges exploded, sending volcanic-like water spewing into the air. It killed an unknown number of the survivors. Some may have even been sucked under when it happened, or the explosion could have ruptured their insides into mush. It was truly devastating. After its successful attack, the U-552 disappeared and waited for another ship to ambush. The survivors, however, managed to climb it back into their life rafts and wait to be rescued. As they are part of a convoy, they would not spend very long in the frigid elements. While the Niblack raced to rescue the survivors, the Hillary P. Jones raced to provide aid and fight off any other attacks that the Germans might attempt. But nothing happened. Out of a crew of 143 and one passenger, only 44 were saved. Unfortunately, one of those rescued, Seaman 3rd Class Donald E. Olmsted, died on November 2nd, reducing the survivors to 43, one of which was the passenger, Kenneth C. Oakes. All seven of her officers were killed instantaneously, as well as 93 enlisted men. Most of them had no idea what hit them before they were killed, in the blink of an eye. Folks, this goes to show you never know what moment could be your last. What say we live it well? Now remember, all this occurred on October 31st, 1941. More than a month before the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And despite a hundred sailors being killed, the U.S. still did not declare war. I believe that we should have. We were not attacking the Germans, 
though they saw it otherwise. They attacked the convoy unprovoked. It is thought that perhaps when the U-552 launched the torpedoes, they were aiming at a cargo ship as opposed to the Reuben James, and by chance, at the last second, the ship sailed into its path. We may never know the truth, as this tale has nearly been completely forgotten. But one influential person heard about it, and being a songwriter, decided to put his thoughts to paper. He then picked up his guitar and started messing with a melody to put to the words he had just scribbled down. Taking a drag on his cigarette, he blew out a cloud of smoke and started to quietly sing. Then, as the rest of the song came to his mind, his voice grew louder. He wanted to put the names of the fallen into the song, but he knew that would never work. So instead, he thought of this for the chorus. What were their names? Tell me what were their names. Did you have a friend on the good Reuben James? He then went to his recording studio and made the song. The man's name was Woody Guthrie, better known for penning the song, This Land is Your Land. His song would later be covered by several different recording artists. I personally prefer two other versions, both done in the early 60s. I first heard of the ship when I heard the song performed by Johnny Horton on his album, Johnny Horton Sings History. Here's a portion of that recording. It was there in the dark of that uncertain night That we waited for U-boats and waited for that fight Then a whine and a rock and a great explosion roared And they laid the Reuben James on that cold ocean floor What were their names? Tell me what were their names? Did you have a friend on the good Reuben James? What were The other version I like was by the Kingston Trio, another famous folk group from that era. Listen to the passion they have in their voices as they sing the last verse and chorus of their song. Many years have passed since those brave men are gone. Those cold icy waters, they're still and they're calm. Many years have passed and still I wonder why the worst of men must fight. And the best of men must die oh, Tell me what were their names Tell me what were their names Did you have a friend On the good Reuben James Tell me what were their names Tell me what were their names Did you have a friend On the good Reuben James If that song doesn't fill you With some sort of patriotism or at the very least, give you chills, <laughs> then I don't know what will. But let us now move on to the next wreck in our journey. The wreck of the nuclear sub, the USS Thresher. Oh, the Thresher, the finest atomic ship that ever died for the sea. Each man on board was a volunteer, was there because he chose there to be. As you heard alluded to in that portion of the song, the USS Thresher was considered to be the best of all the nuclear submarines of its day. The time frame? Near the height of the Cold War. You see, the US and the Soviet Union were at war with each other. 
but not a war that brought about an abundance of casualties. It was more of a scientific war, trying to beat each other with new forms of technology and travel. The space race drew loads of attention, and the Soviets were the first country to put a man into space. Yeri Gagarin orbited the Earth in the spring of 1961. It more or less thrusted the space race into the forefront of the newspapers and news broadcasts. But another race was being propelled at the same time. Although instead of going into space, this race was below the waves. Submarines had far beyond proven their worth during World War II. And now both sides were trying to create nuclear subs that could become launch pads for nuclear war if it ever arose. And the U.S. won. But only at first. For disaster struck like so many other famous ships on its maiden voyage. The Thresher was launched in the summer of 1960 and commissioned by the Navy in August of 1961. She was designed to find and destroy Russian submarines in case actual war was ever declared between Russia and the U.S. She was the fastest and could operate in practical silence, making her deadly by anyone's standards. The Thresher conducted many test trials over the course of that year and in July of 1962 went back to Portsmouth, Maine to be inspected and repaired in preparation for her deep sea diving tests. The repairs needed ended up taking an additional three months and she was released from dry dock on April 8, 1963. The next day, Lieutenant Commander John Wesley Harvey took command of the sub and his crew came on board and prepared for her diving tests. Every man on board volunteered for the post, as it would be experimental diving to depths that had never been attempted before. Some of her original crew decided to opt out of the assignment due to various reasons. No one had ill will towards any of them. Thresher sailed down the coast and met up with the sub-rescue ship, the USS Schuyler, to commence deep-sea diving tests off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. That afternoon, she was given the all-clear to begin test dives. <coughs> She dipped below the surface and commenced a trim dive, which, to put into plain English, <laughs> means to completely flood the main ballast, safety, and bow buoyancy tanks. And if that's still confusing, in dumbed-down English that I fully understand, means they fill portions of the sub with water to make it sink. Then when it's ready to rise, the engines designed to drain the tanks do their job and the sub resurfaces. Anyway, back to the story. That evening, she dove down to half-test depth and stayed down all night. The next morning, she reestablished radio contact with Skylark, with which she'd been in constant contact during their deep diving tests. Thresher then began her dive to the depths. She was to stop and radio Skylark every 30 meters, which is 100 feet for you fellow landlubbers like me, to verify everything was working properly. When Thresher reached test depth, Skylark received a distorted message saying they were having minor difficulties and have positive up angle attempting to blow. And a few minutes later, received an even more indistinguishable call with the only understandable word being 900. They then heard a distant, unidentified rumble. Thresher never contacted Skylark again. 
After some time had passed, the captain of the Skylark and the rest of her crew came to the terrible conclusion that Thresher was lost. But how? Why? She was the best of the best. She was just out of dry dock. How in heaven's name could this have happened? It was a question that had to be answered, no matter the cost. The captain of the Skylark wasted no time. He radioed to the Portsmouth Naval Yard and informed them that something had gone wrong during Thresher's dive tests. He requested more ships be sent to aid in the search. By 3 p.m., 15 ships had arrived and were actively searching for any sign or signal of the Thresher and of her crew. Within four hours, the commander of the search fleet sent word back to Portsmouth to begin letting the family members of the crew know, starting with the commander's wife, that Thresher was missing. For anyone who had loved ones on a submarine... When they received news like that, they instantly feared the worst, especially since they knew she was conducting deep-sea dive tests. It was more of a death notice than a missing notice. The next day, Admiral George Anderson, Chief of Naval Operations, addressed the anxiously awaiting press to inform them that the Thresher had been lost with all hands. President Kennedy ordered flags to be flown at half-mast from April 12th to April 15th in mourning of the loss of the 129 men on board. 16 officers, 96 sailors, and 17 civilians were on board. The investigation and search commenced immediately after the memorial service. And during the course of that investigation, one of the things the Navy did to study how large objects sank was they brought a car into the middle of the ocean and dropped it, just to see what effects the water had on it. Quite a feat of ingenuity to bring in something so much smaller to study, but they were desperate to find any clues that could lead them to the answer of how the thresher sank. Finally, after six long months of searching the ocean floor, 1,416 fathoms down, 8,500 feet roughly, the Navy's only deep diving vessel, the Bathyscaphe Trieste, finds all that remains of the Thresher. Mere pieces were found of the once mighty submarine that was 279 feet long, weighed over 3,500 tons, and was the home of 129 men. The findings indicated that the Thresher had imploded and at such a force that resulted in only chunks of scrap metal being found, but no human remains. The investigation continued. Through a court of inquiries, it was discovered that on Thresher's maintenance record that 14% of the joints in the ship's piping that moves high-pressure seawater throughout the boat had failed ultrasonic inspection, and hundreds of other joints had never been properly tested. It is believed that at the depth where Thresher went down, failure in a 6-inch pipe could dump 11,000 gallons of water into the ship per minute. Blaine Wilhelm, oiler. Over again and again the final communication the Thresher had sent, and they came to this deduction. A failed pipe in the engine room floods the compartment and forces her reactor to shut down. With her reactor down, Thresher only has her batteries to power the boat, and these are simply not enough. As a last attempt, they blow compressed air into the ballast tanks and try to make it to the surface before... Ernest McSorley, Captain. 
John McCarthy, first man. As the ballast tanks had not been modified from their original form on diesel subs to that of nuclear ones which could dive far deeper. The results of this discovery were heartbreaking and the investigating team relived not only the Thresher's final moments, but the final moments of their friends and family as well. Take a listen to this clip of Dr. Robert Ballard's explanation of what happened next. And it couldn't get enough buoyancy. Remember, it's, getting, it's taking on water, so it's getting heavier, and then it's just going to go up, sort of stall out, and then just slip back. With her batteries having failed, the thresher hangs in a momentary lull, neither rising nor sinking. Then she slowly slips downwards towards the bottom of the ocean. Crush depth is at 1,500 feet. When she reaches that depth, the seawater proves to be too powerful for the ship to withstand. And uh, once you go below crush depth, which isn't far away, then Mother Nature does it. Uh, pressure just, you know, crushes that submarine, goes off like a bomb. In 1985, the Navy commissioned Dr. Ballard, who was serving in the Navy Reserves at the time, to go and photograph the wreck of the Thresher to try and reach any other conclusions they might have missed. In exchange for his service to the Navy in this matter, he was given the resources needed to search for and later discover perhaps the greatest shipwreck known to man, the RMS Titanic. Coming in on, on the Thresher for the first time, it was uh, eerie. It was very much like going to a battlefield or going to Pearl Harbor. Something horrible happened here, and a lot of people died. And you've sensed that. The Court of Inquiries came to the conclusion that Thresher was rushed to active duty far too quickly so as to test her revolutionary high-tech equipment. And when the Navy did so, they cut corners that proved deadly. In what is not the usual case, the sinking of the Thresher, in peacetime, was not the fault of her crew, but of those in the shipyard when she was in dry dock. Proves why inspections are so vital to making sure things are working properly. When you cut corners, you might be just risking your job, but your actions could cost lives. As a tribute to her fallen crew, the Navy declared that the USS Thresher was on eternal patrol, forever sailing the oceans and in the hearts of all sailors. Oh, the Thresher, yes, now her reactor is still, but very good company she Men from the Lexington, Hornet, and the Wasp are down there with her in the deep. Every man jack on board was a hero. Every man jack on board there was brave. Every man jack on board was a hero. Each man risked the watery We now go west, 
inland across the eastern seaboard of the United States to the Great Lakes of the state of Michigan and province Ontario, Canada, to visit the story of the largest and perhaps most famous shipwreck of Lake Superior, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. The Edmund Fitzgerald is unlike our previous ships. As they were built for times of war and defense of our country, the Edmund Fitzgerald was a freighter built for the sole purpose of taking cargo from one place to another across the Great Lakes region. But the reason why she became so infamous is because of her size. She was the longest freighter in Great Lakes history and was the pride and joy of the American shipping lines. No other ship could match her ability to hold as much cargo nor match her records of reaching their destinations. One of her former captains, even played music as the ship would pass through the Detroit and St. Clair rivers, which endeared her to people as they watched from the shoreline as the massive freighter sailed past. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's return to her construction and launch, which took place back in 1957. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company of Milwaukee contracted the Great Lakes Engineering Works to build them a vessel that was, quote, within a foot of the maximum length allowed for passage through the soon-to-be-completed St. Lawrence Seaway. The ship's dimensions ended up being 730 feet long, 75 feet wide, and a draft of 25 feet. She was by far the largest ship to ever be commissioned for the Great Lakes to date. Now, when you look at such ships, you naturally think that they have 99% cargo space and 1% meager quarters for the crew. But this would be a misconception. For she had luxurious furnishings, bought from at one time the second largest department store in the U.S. Among the furnishings were deep pile carpeting, tiled bathrooms, drapes over the portholes, and leather swivel chairs in the guest lounge. The pilot house was state-of-the-art as well, having the finest nautical equipment installed and a beautiful ornate map room. Yes, the Edmund Fitzgerald was truly a sight to behold when it was all said and done. When it came time for christening the ship, Northwestern Mutual named it after its president and chairman, you guessed it, Edmund Fitzgerald. When it came time for christening the ship, Northwestern Mutual named it after its president and chairman, you guessed it, Edmund Fitzgerald. A crowd of over 15,000 people came to see it slip into the water for the first time on June 7, 1958. On September 22nd of 1958, Edmund Fitzgerald completed her nine days of sea trials to make sure she was fit for duty. Upon commissioning, Upon commissioning, she was named the flagship of the Columbia Transportation Shipping Company. And as previously stated, and as previously stated, and as previously stated, 
often beat her own accomplishments. Her top record for a solo trip was reached in 1969 when she delivered 27,842 tons of materials. Truly a remarkable ship. Her usual cargo was iron ore pellets called taconite that would be delivered to iron mills along the Great Lakes. When the people heard that Edmund Fitzgerald was bringing in the haul, crowds would gather to watch as she sailed by. Edmund Fitzgerald averaged roughly 47 trips per shipping season, which is roughly 10 months long, from the end of March to the beginning of January. By 1975, Edmund Fitzgerald had traveled more than a million miles, which is about 44 trips around the world. Pretty doggone impressive, huh? But as the title of the podcast alludes to, we know what happens to the Edmund Fitzgerald, so let's go to that story. On November 9th, 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald departed from Superior, Wisconsin, bound for a steel mill near Detroit, Michigan, on Zug Island. Her cargo, 26,535 tons of taconite ore pellets. She had a crew of 29 men, under the command of Captain Ernest McSorley. He was 63 years old and had over 40 years of sailing experience. He had taken command of the Edmund Fitzgerald in 1972 and knew the ship and what she could handle extremely well. By the time they had finished loading the cargo and the hatchways had been made secure, it was just after 2 p.m. Then the Edmund Fitzgerald cranked up her engines and set sail. By 5 p.m., she had reached her top speed of 16.3 miles per hour. Not very fast by our way of thinking, I'll grant you. But on a cargo ship with 26,000 plus tons of iron ore, that's not too bad. There was a threat of a storm looming over Lake Superior, but the forecasters predicted it would dissipate by early the next morning. This was not unusual weather for the lake at this time of year. Still, the crew of the Edmund Fitzgerald were happy to see another freighter join them that afternoon. The Arthur Anderson, which had just spent the previous winter in dry dock being lengthened, departed from Two Harbors, Minnesota with her own cargo of iron ore. Under the command of Captain Bernie Cooper, another highly experienced sailor with over 30 years experience of sailing the Great Lakes. The Arthur Anderson's destination was Gary, Indiana. Both captains knew each other quite well, and both wanted to get one last trip in before the winter weather ended the season for them. This fateful journey would take two days to sail to the locks of Sault Ste. Marie, over 300 miles away. The way of the shipping lanes was straight through the heart of the Great Lake, which meant sailing north towards Canada, then sailing southeast to the locks. It was the normal route that every captain took nearly every time. However, as much as both captains and their first mates were nautical experts, none of them had any idea of the storm that was looming. Nor did they know that this storm would break records as the worst storm the Great Lakes had seen in more than 30 years. That good shipping drew was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. The journey was going somewhat smoothly till the afternoon turned to evening. The winds then picked up quite noticeably and by 7 p.m., the National Weather Service had issued a gale warning for the lake with winds blowing between 34 and 47 knots per hour, which is 39 to 54 miles per hour. 
Basically, that means if you must proceed, do so with caution, but better to find shelter if possible. The captains decided to alter their course when they received the warning and sailed north. I quote the following from shipwreckmuseum.com. Quote, there they would be protected by highlands on the Canadian shore. This took them between Isle Royal and the Keweenaw Peninsula. They would later make a turn to the southeast to eventually reach the shelter of Whitefish Point. End quote. But as the night dragged on, the weather deteriorated even more. By 1 a.m., the gale warning had been upgraded to a winter storm warning, with winds about 52 knots per hour, roughly 60 miles per hour, and waves at about 10 feet. The weather was turning much faster than even the experts could have predicted. The wind and the wires made a tattletale sound And the wave broke over the railing And every man knew as the captain did too T'was the witch of November come stealing Up to this point, the two freighters had been playing cat and mouse, more or less. But in the early hours of November 10th, Edmund Fitzgerald passed the Arthur Anderson and sailed several miles ahead, mainly for safety precautions. As the 10th of November dragged slowly on, the storm lessened for a time, then shortly thereafter strengthened rapidly, with winds now blowing northwest. Snow had begun falling, which made visibility nigh on impossible. Radar was their only way of seeing each other and the ships were in constant contact via radio or telephone. But the weather was starting to take a toll on the heavy-laden ships, especially the Edmund Fitzgerald. At around 3.30 p.m., McSorley called Cooper. His voice was calm, but Cooper sensed he was worried. Anderson, this is Fitzgerald. Bernie, I have a fence rail down, two vents lost or damaged, and a list. I'm checking down. Will you stay by me till I get to Whitefish? Stand by, Fitzgerald. We're gathering your coordinates. Ernie, you got your boats going? Yes, boy, they're going at full blast. <laughs> this storm is one for the books. A few minutes later, the Coast Guard put out a bulletin stating that the locks of Sault Ste. Marie had been closed due to the weather and that all ships still out on the water should find shelter immediately and anchor to wait the storm out. But the two massive ships were nowhere near any safe harbor. They were smack dab in the middle of the lake. So they kept on, hoping and praying they'd make it to Whitefish Bay. At 4.15 p.m., McSorley called Anderson with troublesome news. Anderson, this is Fitzgerald. Bernie, I've lost my radar. I think a wave has knocked it out. Either that or the snow and the water has frozen it, but either way, it's useless. We're going to slow down as much as we dare. Can you guide us on? Fitzgerald, this is Anderson. Don't worry, Ernie, we got you. At 5.20 p.m., a massive wave crested, then came down hard on the Arthur Anderson. It smashed the starboard lifeboat, rendering it useless. The Anderson then reported that winds were at a steady 58 knots per hour, with gusts upwards of 70 knots per hour, and seas were 18 to 25 feet, with some reaching as high as 35 feet. As the 7 o'clock hour closed in, things took a darker turn for the worse. According to Captain Cooper, At about uh, 6.55 p.m., 
the man and I and the Anderson's pilot house felt a bump. Felt the ship lurch and uh, then turned to see a monstrous wave engulfing the entire vessel from astern. The wave worked its way along the deck and crashed into the back of the pilot house, driving the bow of the Anderson down into the sea. Then ship just raised up, shook itself all that water, broof, just like a big dog. Another wave, just like the first one or bigger, hit us again. And I watched those two waves head down the lake towards the Fitzgerald. Morgan Clark, the Arthur Anderson's first mate, called the Fitzgerald and asked the following. Fitzgerald, this is the Anderson. Uh, have you checked down? Yes, we have. Fitzgerald, we are about 10 miles behind you and gaining at about 1.5 miles per hour. Uh, there is a target 19 miles ahead of us, so the target would be 9 miles on ahead of you. Well, am I going to clear? Yes, he is going to pass to the west of you. Well, fine. By the way, Fitzgerald, how are you making out with your problems? We're holding our own. Okay, fine. I'll be talking to you later. At 7.15 p.m., the pip on the radar that indicated the location of the Fitzgerald went out. But unlike before, it did not reappear. Cooper and Clark waited several anxious moments to see if the pip would come back, but it didn't. They then looked at each other. Clark called Fitzgerald, but there was no answer. Hanging up the phone, Clark spoke the words they were all thinking. Bernie, I think we just lost him. I think the Fitzgerald has sunk. Later that night when his lights went out of sight Came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald Captain Cooper then radioed any ship he could, asking if he could be understood. He was hoping that his communication system had been knocked out, praying that's why he couldn't contact the Fitzgerald. But the other captains responded saying they could hear him just fine. He then asked if any of them happened to know if the Fitzgerald had made it into the harbor, but none reported her coming in. Cooper then contacted the Coast Guard because he had that gut feeling, as did his first mate, that the Fitzgerald was lost. The Coast Guard couldn't commit to the search at that time as they were busy looking for another boat which was past due. At 8 p.m., after safely making it to Whitefish Bay, Cooper called the Coast Guard again. The following is a recording of Captain Cooper's communication with the Coast Guard, and then they're asking him to do the unthinkable. 
Captain Cooper reluctantly agreed to go back out and search. And while the search did turn up some wreckage, including one of the lifeboats that, although it was made of steel, was ripped apart as if it were tin. No survivors were found, nor were any bodies ever recovered. On November 14th, the Coast Guard located the wreck, about 17 miles from the entrance to Whitefish Bay. The Edmund Fitzgerald lay at a depth of 530 feet, broken in half. Her cargo scattered all around the deck. The Coast Guard said, quote, The cause of the sinking could not be conclusively determined. It maintained that the most probable cause of the sinking of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald was the loss of buoyancy and stability resulting from massive flooding of the cargo hold. The flooding of the cargo hold took place through ineffective hatch closures as boarding seas rolled along the spar deck. End quote. But the Lake Carriers Association vigorously disagreed with the Coast Guard's suggestion that the lack of attention to properly closing the hatch covers by the crew was responsible for the disaster. They issued a letter to the National Transportation Safety Board in September of 1977. The Lake Carriers Association was inclined to accept that the Fitzgerald passed over the Six Fathom Shoal area as reported by Captain Cooper. Here's what Captain Cooper thought caused the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I don't care what anybody says, at 3.10 in the afternoon she had either bottomed out or had a stress fracture of the hull. That's the only two possibilities I have. She was sinking from that time on. I think it was sudden and catastrophic. I mean, he just, the ship just disappeared completely. All you had to do was pick up the phone and say, mayday, mayday. And uh, there's nothing, you know, I mean, uh, I think they were going under and they thought it was a big wave. And I think they just kept going, just plunged. As experienced a sailor as Captain Cooper was, his explanation makes the most sense, at least in my opinion. But to break such a massive ship in half, that to me is a testament to the power of God's creation. While this story is one of tragedy, I can't help but think of the humbling aspect it must have left on everyone else who survived that night. While the Fitzgerald was the largest ship known to sail on the Great Lakes when she was launched, many ships surpassed her in length and weight capacity, including the Arthur Anderson. But she was the first. 
and everyone loved how magnificent she was. So when she sank, it proved that no matter how grand we think of certain things, they can all be washed away in the blink of an eye. The Titanic was thought to be unsinkable, but sank on her maiden voyage. The Bismarck was the fastest battleship and the strongest built known to man, but was also sunk on her maiden voyage. The Thresher, another casualty. So many ships thought to be invincible have all sunk. Their wrecks are now a twisted reminder that man will never be able to fully master the waves. God alone is able to do such things. Remember the Bible story of when Jesus calmed the storm. He simply said to the wind and the waves, Be still, and they were calmed. Never doubt the power of God, for He alone is the master and commander of the waves. While we may never know the true answer of why she sank, the legend of the Edmund Fitzgerald will permanently be etched into the hearts of everyone who played a part in her story. Yet that's not where the story ends. For the story of the sinking captivated the singer Gordon Lightfoot, who was so moved by the story of the shipwreck, he decided to write a song about it. While he does take some creative licensing in it, it was released before all the findings of the shipwreck were unearthed. When certain parts were brought to his attention, he altered the lyrics, but only in live performances, not wishing to go through the hassle of copyright issues. The song became an instant hit, and Lightfoot himself said he considers the song to be his best composition. When you hear the opening chords of the electric guitar, you know you're in for a well-told story. The song is over six minutes long, but it never feels that long because it is so moving. You sail right along with the story and almost feel like you're on the ship itself. All through the storm and up to the point she vanished from the surface. I used to despise long songs. I'm right there with you. But over the past five years or so, I've had a change of heart. Especially when it comes to ballads. I find them to be amongst my favorites. The Wreck of the Evan Fitzgerald is in my top three hands down. The song has also garnered dozens of reactions by YouTubers who ask people to give them song suggestions. Edmund Fitzgerald is one of the most suggested, and thus the legacy of the once mighty ore carrier lives on. To complete her story, one less tale must be told. In 1995, on July 4th, divers went down and removed the ship's bell to bring solace to the family members of those who have been lost. They then donated the bell to the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, quote, to be incorporated in a permanent memorial at Whitefish Point, Michigan, to honor the memory of the 29 men of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, end quote. A replacement bell was taken down and set in its place on the wreck, with the names of the crew etched into it. Every year now, the names of the crew, as well as the names of others who have been lost on the Great Lakes, are read aloud. Yet the reading of the names of the Edmund Fitzgerald's crew has a special meaning, because as their names are read, the ship's bell is rung, and that's a tradition I intend to maintain here on this podcast. I believe it to be a solemn tribute to conclude the stories of these once mighty vessels. Here now are the names of the crew, and as each name is read, the ship's bell will toll. Ernest McSorley, Captain John McCarthy, 
first mate. James Pratt, second mate. Michael Armagost, third mate. David Weiss, cadet. Ransom Cundy, watchman. Carl Peckhall, watchman. William Spangler, watchman. John Simmons, senior wheelman. Eugene O'Brien, wheelman. John Poviak, wheelman. Paul Rippa, deckhand. Mark Thomas, deckhand. Bruce Hudson, deckhand. George Hull, chief engineer. Edward Binden, first assistant engineer. Thomas Edwards, second assistant engineer. Russell Haskell, second assistant engineer. Oliver Champeau, third assistant engineer. Ralph Walton, oiler. Blaine Wilhelm, oiler. Thomas Benson, oiler. Gordon McClellan, wiper. Robert Rafferty, steward. Alan Kalman, second steward. Joseph Mazes, special maintenance man. Thomas Borgeson, maintenance man. Frederick Beecher, porter. Nolan Church, porter. The church bell chimed till it rang 29 times for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald. And the legend lives on from the Chippewa down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. Superior, they said, never gives up her dead when the gales of November come early. And that will do it for this episode of the Snowman Podcast. References used in this podcast include for the Reuben James www.history.navy.mil forward slash research forward slash Ruben James wikipedia.org wikipedia.org forward slash USS Ruben James www.archives.gov forward slash exhibits forward slash Ruben James for the thresher sources are www.history.navy.mil forward slash USS Thresher, wikipedia.org forward slash USS Thresher, www.history.com forward slash this day in history forward slash atomic submarine sinks in Atlantic, www.navytimes.com forward slash USS Thresher, www.wearethemighty.com forward slash eternal patrol, the CBS documentary The Legacy of the Thresher, and the Nova documentary, Submarines, Secrets, and Spies. 
These documentaries are available on YouTube. For the Edmund Fitzgerald, www.shipwreckedmuseum.com forward slash Edmund Fitzgerald, www.ontarioparks.com forward slash Edmund Fitzgerald 40 years later, www.wxyz.com forward slash Edmund Fitzgerald, the Discovery Sunday documentary, Edmund Fitzgerald, available via YouTube, the Lost Fitzgerald search tapes, available via YouTube, wikipedia.org forward slash Edmund Fitzgerald, and the documentary, The Edmund Fitzgerald, A 40-Year Legend, available on YouTube. Songs used throughout this podcast include Sinking of the Reuben James, composed and performed by Woody Guthrie, Sinking of the Reuben James, performed by Johnny Horton, and Sinking of the Reuben James, performed by the Kingston Trio. The Ballad of the Thresher, performed by the Kingston Trio. And The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, performed by Gordon Lightfoot. All songs are available via iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you download your music from. I highly recommend you doing so. And that will really do it for this episode of the Snowman Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please check out those references because, as I always say, don't take my word for it. Do your own research. Even though the stories were all sad, the history surrounding those vessels was what fascinated me about them and why I wanted so badly to share them with you. If you liked this episode, please share it with your family and friends. Also, if you liked it, please leave a five-star review so it will be easier for others to find it as well. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Or, as I always say, just type in the Snowman Podcast and look till you see an American flag with a snowman in the foreground. Till next time, this is Snowman, and I'll see you now, yeah? What do sailors get when they're finally cured of writer's block? A tidal wave. Ugh. <laughs> that was a real sinker.